0: I'm going to say good morning, happy Easter to those of you in the house with us today as well as all of you who are joining us online. Man, I'm excited today. Jesus is alive. Listen, if you believe that, in just a moment I'm going to say, He is risen and I want you to respond by saying, He is risen indeed. Now I just want you to know, the 915 killed it. All right? The 915 killed it. You can't let the old folks beat you. All right? So here we go. Are you ready? One, two, three. He is risen. Yeah. Risen indeed. Amen. He is risen indeed. Easter, today, some 2.4 billion people around the globe will gather to celebrate the most extraordinary event in human history. Now, I think most of us would just have to admit, we'd have to confess, the last couple of years um, have not been easy for most of us, Right? The last two years have been riddled with fear, anxiety, disease, viruses, wars, rumors of wars, maybe most importantly, a heightened awareness of our own mortality. And yet the message of Easter is that there is an event that stands at the center of history that screams above all of the noise, all of the disasters, the chaos, the fears, the anxiety, that there is hope now and in eternity And what I want to do this morning is talk about Easter in kind of three frames or three movements. This will be on the screens for you. Kind of the the event of Easter, we're going to talk about that, the evidence of Easter, and then finally, I want to invite you to experience Easter this morning. So event, evidence, experience, that's going to be kind of our outline this morning. Then we can go home, we can eat our ham, we can raid our kids' Easter baskets, get all the good dark chocolate out, leave all the nasty peeps in there for them to eat. Now, I just, by way of confession, how many of you guys like those nasty marshmallow yellow, how many? Oh, Lord, have mercy. All right. Well, we know who we're praying for. We know who, who needs to meet Jesus today. All right. Now, before, <laughs> before we go any further, uh, let me just say, man, I know there are people that are here in the room online uh, this morning. And you're here because, like me, you legit believe all this Jesus stuff with your heart. Right, and I'm glad that you're here. And I also know that on a day like today, online in the room, uh, there are some of you who are here as a favor to someone else. Right, your mom, your your wife, that coworker, somebody guilt-tripped you into coming. So I was like, man, everybody goes to church on Easter except Satan worshipers. And you're like, I'm not a Satan worshiper, so I guess I'll accept their invitation. Or your grandma like kind of whispered to you, I'm not getting any younger. This could be my last Easter. It sure would be nice to have the whole family go to church together one last time before I die. You know, whatever the case is, I mean, I don't know why you're here. I don't care why you're here. I'm just glad that you're here. All right. That reminds me of a story of a husband and wife I heard recently that we're getting ready to go to church on Easter morning. And um, the wife uh, got ready before her husband. So she was downstairs in the, in the living room, kind of dressed to the, to the nines, waiting on her husband. That in itself was a bit of an Easter miracle that the wife got ready before the husband. And so she was down there, and five minutes goes by. and She's like, 10 minutes goes by. She's like, man, we're going to be late to church. 15 minutes goes by. And she finally goes upstairs to see what the heck is going on with her husband. She walks in the bedroom, and he is laying in the bed in his PJs watching Netflix. And she goes, boo, what are you doing? Like, it's, it's Easter Sunday. We're already late. And he's like, well, I don't feel like going to church. And she said, well, why, why not? Why don't you want to go to church on Easter Sunday? He said, well, first of all, the people there are really mean. Secondly, they're kind of weird there. Thirdly, I just don't feel like going. And she said, well, first of all, the people at church are not mean. You're actually a jerk to them. The second thing is they're not any weirder than you are, Captain Weirdo. The third thing is you're the pastor. You got to go. Yeah. You know? <laughs> And so I just, I just want to say to my wife, Cheryl, thank you for making me come this, this morning. I'm glad you dragged me out of bed. Now, here's the deal. If you're here, and you, and I know some of you are, you're, you're just there. You kind of rejected the Christian faith. You're kind of on the fence. Man, I don't know about all this Jesus stuff, resurrection from the dead, walking in water, all this supernatural stuff. I'm just, I'm like I'm a scientific person. Uh, whatever it is. If, you, if you're going to walk out of here this morning in 45 minutes and still reject Christianity, listen, I want that to be because you are rejecting Jesus, not because you are actually rejecting religion. All right? I want that be because you're rejecting Jesus, not religion, because we reject religion here too. I reject religion. Jesus rejected religion. And my fear is that many people, especially if you're like me, you grew up in the Deep South, there are many people who grew up in religious environments. Like your parents and grandparents forced you to go to some legalistic hellfire and brimstone church that just scared the mess out of you, or you went to some Christian private school and they scared the mess out of you, or you were hurt or wounded in kind of a religious-y environment. And some of you, my fear is that you have rejected Jesus thinking that you have rejected some jacked-up version of religion. And I just want to be very, very, very clear. Religion is all about rules and regulation, but Jesus is all about relationship, freedom, and life. And those two things are not the same. That changes everything. And so the questions that I want you to be able to answer when you walk out of the room in 45 minutes is, who is Jesus and why does that matter to me? As a modern-day person living in Asheville in 2022, Why on earth should I care about some peasant who was executed 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem? You have a Bible. Go ahead and grab that. Turn it on your device, your app. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. I'll have all this on the screens for you. But go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. That's your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 24. Just a little background before we jump in. At this point in the narrative, uh, Jesus has been crucified. His mangled... Lifeless body has been removed from that Roman cross. He's been buried in the tomb of a very well known, prominent, wealthy man in Jerusalem at the time uh, named Joseph of Arimathea. And his disciples are absolutely terrified. In fact, the scriptures tell us that when he rose, uh, uh, they were actually in hiding. They were so scared because they got to be thinking, uh, put yourself in their shoes. They got to be thinking, we're next. You know, like, man, we've been following this guy for three and a half years. Everybody has seen us with him, traveling with him. Everybody knows that we're like his dudes. And he just got executed. They're probably about to kick down the door and do the same thing to us. We staked our whole lives on this guy. Now he's dead, and we are in deep trouble. And so the disciples are scared, and they are feeling hopeless. And it's into that kind of really dark, fearful, desperate, anxiety-infused scene that we're going to step into Luke's gospel. So if you could, just kind of place yourself in their, their shoes in this moment, right? This is not a happy morning for them. Right? They didn't wake up like us this morning. I like, mean, let's put our good clothes on. I'm going to wear about one tie I have in my closet, and we're going to celebrate. We're going to make a ham. We're just going to be awesome. That was not their experience on the first Easter morning. It was horrible. They were depressed. They were fearful. Now, Luke, our author this morning, you should know if you're not familiar with the Bible, he was a Greek doctor. Uh, So he grew up in a a pagan background. This is not like a dude that grew up in Sunday school and memorizing Bible verses or anything like that. He actually investigated the claims of Jesus by interviewing eyewitnesses of his life, people that knew him, people that saw him after the resurrection. Based on the evidence, he became a follower of Jesus, and he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote the, the book called Acts in the New Testament. He wrote both of those books. So that's our author, Luke, and he writes this starting in 24, verse 1, about that first Easter morning. Dr. Luke writes this. But on that first day of the week, which is what day? Sunday, right? They didn't have names of uh, of the days back then. It was just day one, day two, day three. So the first day of the week is Sunday. So on Sunday, at early dawn, they, and he's referring to a a handful of women who are followers of Jesus, we think probably about five or six women, went to the tomb. That's the tomb of Jesus, right? The the one, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb where Jesus' body was laid, taking the spices that they had prepared. Now make a mental note there, Uh, because we'll we'll come back to that, all right? Verse two, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, let me just stop there for a moment and say this about the events surrounding Easter. Things like the the man, the historical man named Jesus that lived 2,000 years ago, the fact that he made outrageous claims about himself and who he was, The fact that he was executed by the Roman government because he was seen as a threat to their power. The fact that his tomb was empty three days after his execution. All of the facts surrounding the events that make up the Easter story, you may or may not know this, they are widely agreed upon now by both Christian and non-Christian historians. I don't know if you realize that or not. That's just happened probably in the last 20 years or so. Now, there's a lot of debate about how the tomb got empty but there really is no longer any debate among credible historians that there was a man named Jesus who lived, was executed by Rome, was buried in a tomb, and that tomb was empty three days later. That's just widely agreed upon. Now, let me read you just a, kind of a few quotes, some from historians, philosophers. Some of these guys are Christians. Some of these guys are not Christians. The first one on the screen for you is from Antony Flew, a philosopher. He died just a few years ago. He was known as the, the father of modern-day atheism. He became a theist, so he began to believe in God kind of in his latter years. As far as I know, he never became a follower of Jesus. But this is what he wrote after examining all of the evidence around the resurrection. Anthony Flew wrote this, The evidence for the resurrection is better than foreclaimed miracles in any other religion. It is outstandingly different in quality and quantity. Paul Mayer, a historian and novelist, writes this, If all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is indeed justifiable, according to the canons of historical research, to conclude that the sepulcher, the, the, uh, the tomb of Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, in which Jesus was buried, was actually empty on the morning of the first Easter. And no shred of evidence has yet been discovered in literary sources, epigraphy, or archaeology that would disprove this statement. Thomas Arnold, a historian, a professor at Oxford University, says this, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of the fair inquirer, meaning somebody who comes to the evidence with an open mind. Not somebody who's already like, man, I don't believe this. I'm never going to believe this. But if you come with an open mind to the evidence, he's saying there's no better uh, uh, event in history than the great sign which God hath given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Now, listen, I point all of that out, out, out simply to say to you, if you're here this morning, if you're watching online and you're a skeptic, I want you to know, man, I'm glad you're here. Like, welcome to the club. Most of us here were there at one point in time. And let let me just simply, if I could, encourage you to explore the historicity of the events surrounding Easter. Because I would submit to you that there is very good reason for a logical, intelligent, thinking person to come to the conclusion that these events are actually true. Now, I want you to notice, going back to the story, that the women who came to the tomb were carrying what with them. Spices, yeah, you guys made a good mental note, right? They were carrying spice. Do you know why they were carrying spices with them? Because they expected to find a body, not an empty tomb. Just like you would be. Why? Because they weren't morons, right? They, they knew exactly what you and I know today, that dead people do what? They stay dead, right? How many of you know somebody who was dead and you just hung out with them last week, had coffee, went to the beach with them? Raise your hand. Nobody, right? Dead people by and large, stay dead. They knew that. These were not a bunch of like ancient, superstitious dummies that just lived and breathed fairy tales. These were intelligent people just like you and I. They went to the tomb expecting to find a dead Jesus. And yet, look at verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, again, they're confused. They're like, man, what the heck is going on? This is odd. We've never seen this before. We didn't expect this. Behold, two men, we know from other gospel accounts, these are angels, So two men, two angels stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, bowed their faces to the ground. And the men, the angel said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? And I think, man, what a great question for all of us, especially on a day like today. Because I would wager my life that some of you here in the room watching online are just like these women were. You're seeking life among dead things right now in your life. Some of you are seeking that fulfillment, that life in a relationship. So if you're younger here, maybe you think, man, if I could just find the right boo, if I could just find the right boyfriend, the girlfriend that would complete me, make me happy, then I would finally be happy and satisfied in life. My life would be complete. Or maybe you're here, you're a little bit older, and you're chasing that in your career. Man, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just launch that business, if I could just get that whatever, if I could just make $10,000 more than I'm making now. For the younger generation, maybe you're chasing that social media clout. Man, if I could just get X number of followers or likes or retweets or whatever it is, or maybe you're chasing pleasure through food, drink, sex, drugs, whatever it is. Regardless of what you're trying to find life in, the question I think for you is the same as it was all those years ago for those women. Why are you seeking life among dead stuff? You're not going to find it in any of those places. In verse six, the angel continues this dialogue. Verse six, he says, He, Jesus, he's not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still, uh, still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified on the third, and on the third day rise. So in other words, the angel's like, man, don't y'all remember? Jesus told you this was gonna happen. How come you guys forgot this? Verse eight, and then they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. Those are the twelve disciples minus Judas who betrayed Jesus and to all the rest. Verse 10, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary. Make a mental note there that the gospel writers are actually naming the names of these women. That's important. The mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words to the apostles seemed to them an idle tale. And listen, and they did not believe them So I just want to say man if you're if you're here and you have doubts I just want to say good <laughs> So what So did the very disciples of Jesus who went on to write the New Testament and establish the church and see God perform all kinds of miracles and stuff I just want to say man if, if you're here you're a skeptic you don't believe you might be the perfect candidate to become a disciple of Jesus become a pastor one day, something like that. They didn't believe when they first heard the news. And we can't blame them, right? They had just seen three days prior. They had seen Jesus tortured with their own eyes, brutally executed by Rome, and then buried in the tomb of a well-known man in Jerusalem. So they get word from these women who are followers of Jesus that the tomb is empty, and their response is, we don't believe you. Like, have y'all been hitting the bottle kind of early, ladies? You tell them that the tomb isn't, we, we don't believe you. They don't believe. And so let's pick up the narrative. Actually, in John's gospel, so if you're going to slide right over, John's gospel, chapter 20. John is Jesus' probably closest friend, his best friend. He was an eyewitness of the life of Jesus, of all these events. This is what John writes. So he says, verse, chapter 20, verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple. That's John. He's writing about himself. So Peter and John, and they were going towards the tomb, right? And so they hear this, they're like, this sounds insane. This sounds like a myth. Maybe it was too dark. Maybe, maybe they're already drunk. We don't, we don't know what it is, but, but hey, John, come on, bro. Let's go, let's go check this out. Let's put this to rest. Verse 4, both of them were running together, but the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, I just find that hilarious that John wanted you to know that he's a faster runner than Peter, all right? I don't know why he put that in there. Maybe he's like, Peter's a better preacher, but by God, I'm way faster than him. I smoked him in the race to the tomb. He was second place. I want you to know that. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Why did he not go in? It's dark and it's a graveyard. I'm not going in either. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. That's Peter for you, right? He's just kind of a reckless abandon kind of guy. He saw the linen cloths laying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in place by itself. And again, look, some of the theories out there have been like grave robbers came and stole the body, things like that. I'm sorry, grave robbers don't take time to fold the linen cloths, right? You're snatching the body, and you're going. Verse 8, then the other disciple, again Jesus, who had reached the tomb first, don't forget he's faster, also went in, and he saw and believed. And so, I just want you to know this morning that the events surrounding Easter are very compelling. Like, you're not a fool to believe these things at all. So, that's, that's the event of Easter or the events surrounding Easter. Let's, let's move to frame two or the second movement of Easter, evidence. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of the evidence of the resurrection Uh, this morning. I've tried to do that uh, in more detail in previous Easter messages. You can find those online on our website if you want to go a little bit deeper. But let me just hit a few highlights for you this morning and then tell you why I think the evidence for the resurrection is worth your consideration this morning, all right? Now, Now, one thing that all four gospel writers highlight in the Easter story is that women were the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. Women. Now, now you say, Chris, why, why on earth does that matter? Here's why it matters. Because in the first century, women were second-class citizens. They were considered property in the same vein as your house or your horse or a pet or something like that. Women could not vote in that day. Their testimony was not admissible to court. I know that's terrible. It was a super sexist thing, awful, but that was the reality that these guys were living and they were writing these accounts into, meaning that, listen, guys, if you were trying to concoct some kind of story to start a new religion, 100%, you would make the first eyewitnesses men, probably the 12 disciples. And yet, all of the disciples recorded that women were the first eyewitnesses, even though they knew that would undercut the validity of their story. Why did they do that? And I would argue, the reason they did that is because they weren't trying to create a myth. They were just trying to record the facts as they happened. Now, you may have also noticed that the gospel writers named some of the women who discovered the empty tomb. Now, why would they take the time to write down the names of these women in their accounts? And I think this was their way 2,000 years ago of, of tagging them in a Facebook post or an Instagram post. In other words, they're like, hey, listen, if you, if you guys don't believe us, go ask Mary. You know her. She lives right down the road. Go ask Joanna. Go talk to Salome. They'll tell you, they'll corroborate that everything that we're telling you is exactly how it went down. So that's one massive evidence that the first eyewitnesses at the empty tomb were women. That would have never been recorded if they were trying to invent something in the first century. That's just a fact. Now, I think another evidence is the actual lives of the disciples themselves. Now, first of all, if you read the gospel accounts, the disciples make themselves look like complete cowards and total idiots, right? It's just like watching the 12 stooges on repeat. I mean, they are constantly saying dumb stuff. Constantly doubting Jesus, always arguing with each other over the dumbest things. Peter denies Jesus three times to a teenage girl he's so scared on the night of the night before the crucifixion. When Jesus rises, they're all hiding, cowering someplace because they're so scared. I just want to say, listen, guys, if you're trying to start some new religion for the sake of like a power grab or something like that, listen, you write yourself into the story as a hero. Not a drooling moron rocking in the corner by himself. You write yourself in as a hero. They were also, history tells us, they were all tortured and executed, except for John, who died as an old man after suffering greatly on the island of Patmos for prisoners. They all were tortured, all but John were executed for their faith in Jesus Christ. So you're, you're telling me, I, I as an intelligent person, I'm supposed to believe that if this was some like elaborate hoax where they stole the body and they hid Jesus behind Peter's pool, pool table in his man cave or something like that, that when they started to execute these guys, they wouldn't give up the body? Like, listen, you, you maybe could convince me to participate in some hoax with you. Now, I, I hope that uh, I have more integrity to that, but, but just for the sake of argument, let's say that you could convince me, like, Chris, look, I, I made up this story. If you just go along with it, don't tell anybody, we're gonna be rich, we're going to be famous. Our names are going to be known all over the world throughout history. Maybe you could convince me to go along with you. But I'm just telling you, the moment that the CIA agents kick down my door in the middle of the night, drag me out, strap me in an electric chair, cat's out of the bag. I'm letting it all go. I'm naming names. He's the one that hid the body. It's at his house. She knew about it. She knew about it. He knew about it. Let me go. I'm not going down for a lie. And yet, history tells us that every single one of these guys held firm. None of them cracked in the face of unimaginable torture and execution. They believed that Jesus was alive precisely because they saw him dead and buried, and then they saw him alive again. The scriptures tell us that they ate with him, and they talked with him, and they hung out with him for 40 days after the resurrection. They knew what they saw. Now, I think the best evidence, maybe, for the resurrection of Jesus is the fact that his own family began to worship him after the empty tomb. Now, moms in the room, raise your hand if you're a mom. All right, let's see how many moms we got. A lot of moms in here. Raise your hand, keep your hand up if you're the mom of a boy. Raise your hand. I right, got a lot of boy moms in here. Now, I know y'all love your boys, but I'm just gonna go out on the limb and say, ain't none of y'all tempted to believe he's God. All right? All right? Like if your son just came up to you and was like, hey, mom. I got a secret to tell you. I'm God. I bet none of you would believe it. Now, some of y'all maybe have wondered if he's demon possessed before, but, but you, I bet none of y'all have thought he's God before. Now, for, for those of you with siblings, what would it take for you to worship your sibling as God? Like, I have a sibling. I have a sister. I'm just telling you, she grew up with me there's nothing I could do that would make her worship me as God, right? Because she knows who I am. This is a picture like, you know, you're, you're a kid, man, you're at the dinner table one night and um, your, your, your sibling like slides over to you after you steal some of their mac and cheese and then whisper in your ear, I'm God. If you ever do that again, there'll be eternal consequences, right? <laughs> and by the way, I'm gonna need you to start worshiping me would never happen in a million years. And that's exactly what we see with James, the brother of Jesus, who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection. All of a sudden, not only does he believe, he becomes the pillar of the Jerusalem church and is actually martyred for his faith in his brother because he would not recant under the pressure of death that his brother was the risen God of this universe. Now, we could go on for two hours with just empirical evidence after evidence. Um, and, 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 but you guys got ham and chocolate and all that kind of good stuff. Some of you got peeps. So you got to get to those. Just know that the evidence for the resurrection is strong. It's stout. It's okay for an intelligent thinking person to believe this. One more quote for you. E.M. Uh, Locke, professor of classics at Auckland University. Writes this I claim to be a historian. My approach to classics is historical. And I tell you that the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. Friend, Easter invites us to examine the events and the evidence of that day. But here's the thing, guys Easter is meaningless if it's not experienced in a personal way. And I want you to know this morning that this is personal to me. Like this, this is not just like, hey, I'm a pastor and, and it's Easter morning and so I gotta get up here and, and say all this stuff because if not, the elders are gonna fire me or something like that. I want you to know this is real to me. I want you to know that I was on a path to self-destruction as a 20-year-old young man when Jesus ripped into my life and he gave me a new heart and a resurrected life. And 20 years later, I'm still far from perfect. You can ask my wife, but listen, guys, I ain't what I once was. And it's not because I'm a great person or an awesome person. It's because Jesus is alive, and he is making all things new, beginning with his people. And so here's the bottom line that I think none of us can escape, whether you're a Christian, a Buddhist, an atheist, a Muslim, whatever you are, whether you're watching online, whether you're in the room, here's the bottom line. Jesus is undeniably the most famous person in history. Nobody's had more books written about them. Nobody's had more songs written and sung about them. Nobody's had more art created about them. Our calendars are centered on the life of this poor Galilean peasant who was executed 2,000 years ago in his early 30s. And billions of people, past and present, worship him as God. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or he is the king of the universe, to quote C.S. Lewis. I want you to listen to H.G. Uh, Wells, not, not, a, not a believer, not, not a Christian. I want you to look at what he says about the resurrection. He says, I am a historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Jesus himself had these words to say in John 11. It'll be on the screens for you. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you're looking for life in any other place, you're not gonna find it. I am the source of the resurrected life. The Canadian scientist scientist G.B. Hardy uh, one time said this, and I, I love this. Hardy wrote this. When I looked at religion, I said, I have two questions. One, has anybody ever conquered death? Two, if they have, did they make a way for me to conquer death? I checked the tomb of Buddha, and it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Confucius, and it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Muhammad, and it was occupied. And I came to the tomb of Jesus, and it was empty. And I said, there is one who has conquered death. And I asked the second question, did he make a way for me to do it? And I opened the Bible and discovered that he said, because I live, you also Shall live. Now, I want to read a story that I came across recently because I think it just really highlights the whole uh, message of Easter. This is a true story. It was published in, I think, the Washington Post a few years ago. On January 12, 2007, a man emerged from the Washington, D.C. metro station at Leifant Plaza and positioned himself next to a trash can. The young man wore a T-shirt, jeans, and a baseball cap. He removed a violin from a small case and then placed the open case in front of him facing the pedestrian traffic then he began to play. It was 7:51 a.m. on a Friday, the middle of the morning rush hour. For the next 43 minutes, the man performed six classical pieces as nearly 1,100 people passed by. Would any of these people stop to enjoy the music? The fiddler, standing against the wall, the bare wall, outside the metro, wasn't your normal street performer. His name was Joshua Bell, one of the best classical musicians in the world. He was a musical prodigy at age four and is now an acclaimed virtuoso. He packs out concert halls around the world, and the music Bell played that morning was far from ordinary. Over those 43 minutes, Bell played masterpieces that have endured for centuries. Some of the most elegant music ever written. And he played this beautiful music on one of the most valuable violins ever made, a Stradivarius, which was handcrafted in 1713 and is worth $3.5 million. On that Friday, back in 2007, over a 1,000 people had a free front row ticket to a beautiful concert by one of the world's most famous musicians. But only if they had the eyes to see in the ears to hear. And yet, only a handful of people in the metro that morning stopped to listen and enjoy Bell's glorious music. Listen, friends, we can all fail to notice what is so gloriously beautiful right in front of our eyes. And I think the biggest tragedy in the world today would be for you to miss the glorious symphony of Easter that was crafted by your creator as an invitation to you into real resurrected life in Jesus. So friend, if I could just encourage you, don't live such a hurried, distracted, skeptical life that you walk by the most beautiful and valuable thing right in front of you. Because today's excuses become tomorrow's regrets. And I wanna close with this quote from Jesus in Revelation chapter one. Jesus says this, be on the screens for you. Jesus says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades, the keys of death and hell. See, friend, Easter is all about the resurrection freeing you up to experience real life in and through him. Easter is not just a set of, like, historical events or compelling evidence. It's an invitation to experience the resurrected life right now in your life that will flow into eternity. And so, as we close this morning, I want to just invite you for a moment to bow your heads with me, close your eyes. Maybe even if you're at home, bow your heads, close your eyes. This is not any kind of weird religious thing. I'm not going to do anything strange. I just want you to eliminate distractions. And I want to end with a very simple invitation this morning. Listen, if you are here and you have never stepped into that resurrected life before, and I don't care if you grew up in church, I don't care if you can quote Bible verses like nobody's business. Maybe this is your first time in church in a long time, maybe this is your first time in a church in forever. But if you would have to admit, like, man, I don't have what you're talking about. I don't have this resurrected life, a a new heart, a new passion, a new purpose through Christ. I want to invite you to place your faith and put your trust in Jesus alone today. What a more beautiful way to celebrate Easter than to begin a new journey with Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you, if that's you and you want to start that journey with Jesus, I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer with me in just a couple of minutes. Now, the second part of the invitation is this. If you know Jesus, like, man, you're like, yeah, I gave my life to Jesus when I was a kid. I gave my life to Jesus when I was a teenager at youth camp and college, something like that. But I've just drifted. Man, like life just got hard and things got complicated and life got busy. The invitation for you is super simple this morning is simply this. Will you just come back home this morning? If you've drifted, would you just come back home? The Father waits with open arms. And listen, guys, life is only found in Him. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, we come to You. And on this day above every other day, we have so much to be grateful for. God, we could never thank You enough for sending Jesus on a rescue mission for us. When we couldn't get up the mountain to you, you came off the mountain looking for us. Thank you for sending Jesus into this busted up world to live a perfect life that we all should have lived, but we never could live. And he died a brutal torturous death to pay for my rebellion, my sin, and your sin, and your rebellion. and it didn't just stay dead. He rose again, offering us new life now in this world and in the world to come. God, we could never thank you enough for that. And God, I just pray if there's somebody here, if there's a handful of people here maybe watching online and they've never crossed that threshold of faith, they've never given their lives to Jesus, I pray that you would just give them the courage to pray a prayer like this, just in the silence of their own minds and hearts. God, I realize now that I'm a a sinner. Like I'm I'm a rebel. I've been trying to do life my way. I've been living according to my standards. And I realize now that I can't do that. I can never find life in dead stuff. It's only found in you. So God, just the best way I know how, I just want to, I want to turn from my sin. I want to turn from living life my way, and I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to follow him the best I know how for the rest of my days. So God, would you do that in my heart right now? I just want to open my heart. I want to open my life to you. Would you come in? Would you redeem me? Would you forgive me? Would you give me this resurrected life that Jesus offered 2,000 years ago? And God, I pray for the prodigal sons and daughters that are in this room that are watching online who, for one reason or another, know you, man, but they've just drifted. Maybe it's been a long time. and Maybe they feel like they've gone too far. They've done too much. That the sin is too deep. God, would you remind their hearts today that your grace is deeper than any sin. And that you're the loving father with his arms wide open, ready to welcome your sons and your daughters home to you today, God. And so I pray for the prodigal that's out there, that they would come running. They wouldn't walk. They would sprint into the loving arms of their father as you welcome them back home. God, we love you. We thank you so much for sending Jesus. It's in his glorious and beautiful name that we ask and we pray all these things. Amen. Church, listen, that tomb in Jerusalem is still empty. Jesus is still alive. Let's stand and worship our king.